It's good to be back here with all of you. It, one of the common questions that people ask was, how was it? And you say, well, it's just amazing. It really is amazing. It's overwhelming at times. Other times you are fatigued and even pressed beyond measure. And other times you just are abundantly blessed. But really the real blessing is watching this one young man, 29 years old, who Brother Jeff Talbot would have befriended years ago and taken and called him his son and watched this little guy who has came out of poverty. He went on to school, became an engineer. Now he makes way more than he needs to live and he takes that and puts it back to these little impoverished children and starts all of these little centers where these little children begin to learn more both intellectually but then they open the door to the greatest message of all, and that's Jesus Christ. It's amazing. You know, one of the things that's amazing, though, is when you come back in here, and someone told me our, our 747, 747 is getting pretty old, and this thing was 27 years old, they told me, but when those wheels hit the runway at Sky Harbor Airport, you just say, praise God, we're back. It's amazing. And when you're in this setting, and many of you have been in the setting, I guess, on some level. But the food, it's, it's good. It really is good. But the longer you eat it and you smell it, there comes that time you just want American food. <laughs> and the last day, I hadn't had nothing, but I had these little snacks. Deb fills me up with snacks. And I had all these special things, and we're passing those out. But someone told me there's a Burger King about four miles down the road. And I had just a little time. I took off about 90 degrees and 90% humidity, and I got down there. And no one was there, and they just smiled, all the people, and they said, what do you want? I said, I want a Whopper. <laughs> and they could speak English, which was nice. And so they said, you want a chicken Whopper or a beef Whopper? And I thought, well, they don't, they don't kill the cows there, so I think I better go chicken. <laughs> and I was eating it, and someone was asking, well, what, what did it taste like? And I said, well, no lettuce, but instead of lettuce, they put barbecue potato chips in there. <laughs> That's what it was, and, and we're back. Other people ask, the other thing that people ask is, uh, well, are you over your jet lag yet? And in jet lag, God has an amazing sense of humor. Because when we think we're getting over jet lag, he will come back and just laugh because we didn't. And at one o'clock in the morning, you're wide awake and going, how come I'm not sleeping and not tired? It's kind of like you have two pieces of sleep and they go apart as you travel and they start coming back together. And you think they're just about back together and there they go again. And that's jet lag. We're glad to be here though. And we praise God for the work he's doing in India. We'll take a little bit of time today as we're teaching in the word of God to show you that. But we have a brother here, Brother Steve came to me right before church. He's got the nice shiny red unit brought in here, and he said, hey, just make it known that I have a room for a brother in my apartment. If anyone knows any brother, anyone that would like a place to live, Steve's got a place, and he would be glad for them to use the room. And so I said, I'll let, I'll let our folks know. So keep that in mind. He would be glad for uh, anything there. And we're going to be in the Word of God today in the book of Mark, finishing up, Lord willing, the ninth chapter of Mark. Next week, we're hoping to begin to go into the advent of the Lord Jesus and the coming of Jesus and how he came as a child, but the prophets spoke of him, 
and several weeks we'll be committing to this portion of the word, which is so powerful and also very seasonable. And as we start in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, it says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Jesus has left Caesarea Philippi. This, for those of you that have been here, the teaching has been coming from Caesarea Philippi. And he goes to Galilee, which is on the north side of, in the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's going to be to an area called Capernaum. And we'll be looking there today. But Jesus does something he's done several times in Mark. As he's went through a series of lessons and miracles, he begins to speak about how he is going to die and he's going to rise again. You just notice Jesus will keep pointing to the cross. He'll keep saying, here I'm going to the cross. But as he teaches this, he opens up more the further he goes. Today he drops something else in his teaching. If you'll notice with me, as he says, he was teaching his disciples and telling him, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men. Now he's saying, I'm going to be betrayed. Other translations will actually say, I'm going to be betrayed. But he's saying, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. Jesus starts with his death. He goes to his resurrection. But now he says, men are going to betray me. And Jesus is just continually pointing to this great event that was still out there that he was going toward that was going to change the entire world and all focus of humanity. And he said he'll be killed, he'll rise again. And notice the disciples, it says they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask him. It's like, we don't get it. And I don't know why they did not get it. You know, maybe it's a little bit like us. We hear about the cross. We understand Jesus died for our sins. We understand he was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scripture. But the longer we go in our Christian life, God gives us another glimpse of the cross. Maybe it's like this. We see that Christ died for us, but then we begin to see I died with him. He was crucified for us. I am identified with him. And then as we suffer in our Christian life, we identify more at the cross of Christ. But there's another part of it, and that is that the very truth of the cross is so awesome and amazing that there is a place in every Christian's life in all of our studies and worship will stand in awe of God. As we behold what God has done, is doing, and how great that sacrifice was, we're going to be in awe of him, and maybe this is where the disciples were. I don't know, but the Word of God says that they didn't have any, they didn't understand the statement that Jesus made at that time. There's a beautiful verse in Galatians 4 and 4 that speaks of this coming season we're moving into, and in light of what we're looking at here also. And there it was that Paul teaching the Galatians said, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law. And I want us to notice here, God has a time frame through which he works and reveals himself. God often will be quiet for periods of time. Even as he began to speak in Mark about the cross, 
He started quietly pointing to the cross. Then he spoke of the resurrection. And now he's speaking about a betrayal. The cross is getting bigger. The work is getting bigger. It's also true in the Christian's life. We began in our Christian life. We understand Christ died for me. We believe on him to salvation. But the longer we go, Jesus shows us more of what the cross is. And he, he just takes us and says, I got a little bit more to show you. And we go deeper into the cross. And we begin to identify with the work of Jesus at the cross deeper. This is where the disciples would go. They would leave. They would see him die. He'll be raised. They will go out and plant churches and suffer and finally give their lives for, for the sake of Jesus. And all the way, it will be a beautiful learning lesson of the magnitude and depth of the cross of Christ and what Jesus has done for them. And remember with me where they had came from. They had came from that mount where Jesus was transfigured that we would have heard of just recently. And there they hung out with Moses and Elias. When you think about that, here they were. They were really in a very select group of people. They were able to see something so amazing. And that's where they were. And we entered into the next part of this passage and we'll begin to see some teaching that breaks out after Jesus' teaching about the cross. And in verse 33, it says they came to Capernaum, and that's just a beautiful city on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee at this time. It sits in a beautiful area at that time that was just tremendous. But the day would come that Capernaum would experience the judgment of God. And maybe what Jesus is speaking of here and giving us a lesson is part of the reason that Capernaum would experience the judgment of God like they would. They came to Capernaum, and he was in the house. When he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you, what were you, you discussing on the way? Now, Jesus asked a lot of questions, and he already knows his questions. It's not like, I, I got to know, he already knew. But notice this, it's like, they, but they kept silent. They got quiet, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. You see where they've got to. Do you see where they slipped to? Do you see how subtle the slip was? You see where they were so shortly before at the mount with the Lord Jesus in transformation, and now they had moved to a place of who is the greatest. And sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And that word servant is, is diakonos. It is a waiter. It is the one with the towel. It is the one who chooses to go low, get under, around, support. And this is who Jesus would be. He would set the perfect example. His entire life was this way. But Jesus noticed these men had suddenly slipped. They had moved from a great spiritual high down to a degrading low in a very, very short period of time. It's a subtle slip. 
When you think about it sometimes, they were talking about the greatest in the kingdom. This was spiritual pride. They weren't talking about, I want to get the job, or I want to get the position, or I hope I can get the degree. They were talking about spiritual kingdom stuff here. When the Lord Jesus called him out, and he did this, and then he sat down with the 12, and if you notice, and he said he sat down. He didn't stand up. He didn't say, okay, guys, I'm going to line you up here. You were wrong. No, he sat down. But notice what he said, which was so profound. And Jesus sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You know, Jesus was saying, the way up is down. The kingdom's upside down. What I came to bring and what I'm coming to teach is exactly the opposite of what the flesh sees. Weakness in Jesus is strength. Strength in ourself is weakness. And if you want to make an interesting study, just take, take that and just keep following it through the Bible. That where there is strength, there is weakness. Where there is weakness, there's strength. God works in so many ways, and Jesus was just teaching this amazing truth. You know, Capernaum was an exalted city at the time Jesus was speaking. Reading history, you'll see a city that uh, I should have grabbed a picture of. One of the brothers came up afterward. I wish you had a picture of Capernaum, and I wish I did too now. But some of the pictures I've seen of it, and it doesn't exist any longer, is a magnificent city at this time. The art that was done, the magnificence of the architecture, the construction of that city. Capernaum in many ways had it all. But here's what Jesus said as he was there in that city in Matthew 11 and 23 regarding Capernaum. He says, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, that is hell, or you're going to experience God's judgment. For if the miracles had occurred in you, it would have remained until this day. Capernaum, as high as you are today, you will experience the judgment of God and you will come to ruins. And for those of you who have been here, and I believe two and a half months from now, we're looking forward to going with many of you over there to Israel. And it is a staggering shot to stand there in Capernaum and look at nothing but a bunch of ruins of that which God, when God says he'll do it, he does it. God fulfills his word. It comes to pass. And Capernaum finally experienced the judgment of God. But maybe in Capernaum was this little problem that the disciples were dealing with that might have seemed very small and almost insignificant, but really quite large. Just a little bit of pride. Jesus was calling out to something that so easily creeps into the heart of a Christian. And if you notice this, he, another verse just in the, next, in the next chapter, in Mark 10 and 14, Jesus said, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You know, that's what Venkana, our, our brother in India, he calls this his church. There's a sign over there that he has put together, and, and it says CCS on it. And I looked at it and go, that's amazing. He goes, because this is my church. I, he doesn't have a church to go to, uh, but this is his church. But in this area, you see little children that have nothing but are starting to discover Jesus, and they have everything because they have learned something we forget so easily. Jesus makes all the difference. 
Their parents are all Hindu. The average income is $10 a month per family. And if you go into the slums that we'll show you shortly, it's less than that. And they come with everything they have and they sit there and our dear brother, and he puts these what they call tuition masters in every village, a great gift. He's like a Nehemiah. He has a gift of organization. He raises people up. He puts him over 50. And those people are in charge because those children come out of their schools with second grade education. They can't get out of the slums. So these teachers come and begin to give them more education. And then what this dear brother does is he walks into these villages on the weekends and he opens up this door called Jesus. And when those children see Jesus, you can see the sparkle and the glow on their face. If you ever wonder what, if Jesus makes a difference, just look in the eyes of those little Indian children after they've heard about Jesus. But what, what Jesus was really doing here when he was pointing to the little children and gives a lesson is he was reminding the disciples that you can lose a child's heart real quickly. Ministry and discipleship is rugged. We're bouncing and shuffling and juggling and adjusting and bumping into things all over, and Jesus is saying, look at folks, I want you to look at little children because it's so easy to lose the heart of a child. Paul in Galatians 5 and 13 gave a verse that uh, is just good as he was calling the Galatian brothers out of legalism, actually. There was legal, legal belief systems had driven them. For you are called to freedom, brethren. You are called to be free. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You know what breaks the sin of spiritual pride? In love, serving one another. Love, serving one another. And here it is, Paul brought this up. There's a verse Jesus had right after he'd been in the upper room and had washed the feet of the disciples. He'd got those dirty, greasy, grimy feet in his hands. He looked at the guys that were gonna run at the cross and they were gonna forsake him, and he grabs their feet, and he scrubs them and washes them, and then says, I've washed your feet. You go wash others' feet now. But then he gives us a verse in John 15 and 13 after this teaching that seems to summarize the heart of our Savior when he says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was going to do that. His entire life was going to be laid down for his friends as he went to the cross. But as he was speaking here, and he was saying this, he says, the greatest love you'll ever give in your life is when you lay down your life for your friend. You know, a few weeks ago, I picked up one of our, our articles in one of our national papers, and I just kept reading it as, on, as on online, and it just grabbed me. I filed it, pulled it out during the study. I go, this is amazing. What happened? Just happened in North Korea. But you know, there's something about loving and serving and, and just giving to other people selflessly that it just multiplies. It isn't just the little gift, the little offering. It goes further and further and further. 
And you can take a thing to the side. When you hold back from that, we just keep narrowing the blessing down. Pretty soon it comes, becomes about me, to, me and everything just goes inward. But there in North Korea, there was a, I just read this, kind of a hot thing. Just, here's this church that decided the only place they could search, safely worship God was out in the middle of the lake. Because they could get out in the middle of the lake and they had this little boat and there was no one to bother them and they could serve Christ. And they got out in the middle of the lake time and again with little, and all they had was really battered up pieces of Bibles. They were too poor. This is how it is in China. Many people have a page. They trade pages in churches. And they, they were there and pretty soon they look out and here comes a boat toward them. And these believers kind of stiffened and they go, what's going to happen? It came right at them. And someone called out and asked, who are you? They will not deny the name of the Lord. They said, we're Christians. And they said, we are here because we heard you were there to give you brand new Bibles. And from those boats, they offloaded boat Bibles for those believers. And here's what they said. If you'll just give us back your your small, your beat-up Bibles, your, your pieces of Bibles, we'll take them back. Here's your new Bibles. And they were so happy they gave them to them. But the rest of the story that really caught me, by the reason I'm telling it, is they took off and went back to their hotel, these guys, and they stayed in, in this room and they left the Bibles there and went out to eat somewhere. And they came back to the hotel and there was no Bibles. And they go, what happened? And finally, one of them discovered that the housekeeper was a Christian. And in their church, they had no Bibles. And they were praying that God would make a way that they could have Bibles. And she was in there cleaning that room, and she said, I know God provided. And this is the power of multiplication. And it's the power of multiplication in service. And Jesus was teaching something that goes way beyond one act or one action or one response. It goes on and on. And God has an amazing way because none of that as we're responding, we're teaching others because other people right in this room, you've got thousands of eyes watching what a Christian really is when they see you. They see your response. They hear what you're saying. They're really watching what a Christian really is. There's a verse in 1 John 3, 17 through 18 I want us to look at together. It says, for whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You've probably all been there with me, somewhere we closed our heart. I've been ripped off before, I'm not going there again. The guy's on the road, uh, he's asking for money. But the word of God then goes on here and it says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue but in deed and in truth. John was teaching, let that love be expressed by hands and feet and arms and legs and lips and tender acts of kindness. And somewhere in a very short time, these dear men of God were losing that picture as they jockeyed for positions and power. We know that's true in politics. It's, it's quite a deal, isn't it? I mean, I wouldn't make a very good politician. I just wouldn't. I mean, I've watched the flow of that, and pretty soon I just get wore out. 
how they jockey and this guy does this. And I kind of enjoy, kind of keep up with some of it, but it's like, wow, the end justifies the means. I'll do this to get that, and I'll do this to get that. And Jesus was just simply saying, if you want to be great, be a servant. Just say, Lord Jesus, take me and use me. However you want to use me in your kingdom, I want to be available. And I, I say this just looking back on this trip with this dear brother and recognizing I just saw servanthood everywhere. I just saw a person that was just so thankful to serve God in the midst of complete poverty. And you know what's amazing? There was never a complaint. I never heard one complaint. The last place I was going with him, he used to call Jeff, Jeff Talbot dad. He calls me daddy, and Debbie and I was talking about it. None of our children call us, they always called me dad, but he always calls me daddy. I probably heard the word daddy 500 times. We're walking into this village, and they're throwing flowers on top of our heads, the little children. He got bags of flower blossoms and gave them to these little kids, and they're throwing them up at us. And pretty soon, when I got back to my hotel, my entire shirt pocket was packed full of flower blossoms. I didn't even know it. But these, these kids are having a blast. But also, this guy is completely content in what he's doing. Completely content. Now, I want you to see four pictures of, of India really fast. And Pastor Brad may have showed you some of these quickly. But there he is on the right, 29 years old. He heard the gospel through an elder here, Jeff Talbot. He went back to his people. There's his kids. There's a young man on the right of me who's been helping him. He's still a Hindu. He gives him a quarter a day to help him. And he helps him and follows him around. But this guy, this is his castle. And this is where God is using him mightily in the middle of poverty that is so amazing. And when you begin to see the kids with bigger smiles, it's because they're hearing about Jesus for the first time. Where his church is, is in the middle of this, these little impoverished villages where they have no cars, they have nothing like that. They live in huts of ten, from 10 to 10 to 10 by 20, and that's what they live in completely. And there he is up teaching. When I'm there, I don't try to take over the teaching. I says, no, you're the teacher. When I'm gone, I'll speak some, but you are the man. You are God's man for this place. But at night, we mentor with him for hours. He soaks up the word of God like a, a very thirsty man. He, he just wants more of Jesus in many ways. And he's a great man of God. To my left is, is a dear friend from China that came with me because I, I, we just prayed for wisdom. And he has a, God has gifted him with tremendous wisdom to discern as he looks out and sees. But he's also a great facilitator. He puts people together in China and gets out of the way. You hardly see him. He has done that for 40 years. And the kingdom has spread through that country because, again, a man say, says yes to God. You can keep looking, and as you look at those, these pictures, just another village, just more children, and these little children, many times the favorite thing they feed them at the end of their sessions is a banana because they're so malnourished. Not only, not only does it help their food supply, but also the banana, they love them. They'll choose a banana over a piece of cake. It's really amazing how much they love something so simple. But what you find with these people is they are just... So simple, even their parents, they'll all stop to watch the craziest things. Now, the last day, he takes us into the slums of Hyderabad, Hyderabad, India. Eight and a half million people. His heart now is to go into the poorest of the poor of all of India 
and he's gathering these little, little groups together. And once again, they know nothing. They, they will go right back into the slum, but he is teaching them about Jesus. And you begin to see the spark on their eye. And that spark comes because Jesus is beginning to dwell within them. And I was standing off in the corner, and there was a house, right, a little hut beside me. They had no door. All they had was a little tattered blanket to cover up the people that was inside that room. But that is where they live. And you know what, what's interesting? Uh, they're Indians. We're Americans. But they are our brothers and sisters. The Lord died for them, too. God cares for them just like he cares for us. And when you're there like that, you can sense communion and fellowship in the most amazing ways. Jesus here, as he we'll go back to the message here, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. You know, in serving, we have a lot of different parts of ministry. We have giving, we have praying, we have sharing but also another part that sometimes some of us resist is the area of receiving. Now, this is what Jesus said, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me will receive him who sent me. We go into verse 38. John said to him, Jesus gets through with the teaching. Now John speaks and says, teacher, and John was the mild one. John was the one who laid on Jesus' breast. He was the disciple that said who Jesus loved. He was so careful how he spoke. But it was John who said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he was not against us, is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe, believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. John moves into another area. We've looked a little bit at spiritual pride and how it worked within those disciples and how they were jockeying. We don't know what they were doing. They might have been saying, you know, Peter, you'd make a good COO. John, you'd be the great CEO. I don't know what they were saying. Or I wonder how this is going to work out. We'll figure it out. Jesus called him out and called him back to serve. But now Jesus shows us another lesson that's really easy for God's people to fall into. And it is a lesson of judgment. If you look at this with me, it says, John called out and said, teacher, and that word was very honorable. John was recognizing he was more than just a, a philosopher. He was, he was a very high-regarded teacher. John was recognizing that this was Jesus as he said this. But he said, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. We told him, don't do that. And notice what Jesus said, don't hinder him, don't stop him, be careful. Don't look down, don't depreciate, don't deflect, don't, Jesus is saying, don't. It may be of God. 
You know, this is an amazing area in which we dwell as Christians because uh, communities are wonderful to be in, and we grow here. We hear the Word of God here. We're nourished, and pretty soon it is so easy to quietly decide we're right and someone else is wrong. And God might be working in that brother or sister in an amazing way. You know, I even look at all the gifts that are possessed right here in this body. God knows God's using you in so many amazing ways. And the ways he's using you, a lot of it's just glory to God. He is working in your lives. But oftentimes, one gifting may not understand another gifting. We might say, I don't quite get it. And we say, well, why doesn't he do it like me? And that seems to be what the disciples were doing. And Jesus was giving a caution. Oh, disciples, you have been in the mount. You've heard about my death, my resurrection. You have seen me work in many places, but don't fall into the trap of spiritual judgments. You remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't judge, judge not, lest you be judged. Because where you are judged, you'll be judged. And the measure you measure another, you'll be measured yourself. And you'll look out and you'll see the moat in your brother's eye and forget you've got a beam in your own eye. And Jesus was simply saying, hold it, let God work. Now there is a a great verse, uh, two, two verses in 1 John chapter 4, 2 and 3, that John gives us for discernment. They're great verses. We don't just go out there and say, well, every, everything feels good, so this is it. But the Word of God says, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. But here John says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Does the Spirit confess he is the Lord and Savior? He has come in the flesh. He has died for our sins. He is of God, the word of God says. Now, the word confession here is kind of an amazing word. It goes, it speaks of the lips. It also speaks of the life. Because many times as Christians, people will miss the message because they won't hear the words. But if they see the life, they'll hear the message. And here John is saying this. He's saying, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Okay, if they confess Jesus, they're from God. If they don't confess Jesus, they're not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard it's coming, and now it's already in the world. And that's a, that's a big, big area of the Word of God. But here John is saying, this is the litmus test. If you want to know, this is the test. Does the Spirit confess Jesus Christ? And what Jesus was saying is, leave them alone. You see, God has a lot of pieces and parts of the kingdom. There are people out there touching areas that we're never touching. They're seeing things we're never seeing. We are not only victims in some ways of our backgrounds, we're products of our background. And how, where we came from has great effect on how we respond to all kinds of things. But the Word of God says, don't hold them back. Let me work. Let them... Let me reserve the judgment. And then notice how simple it is in 41, for whoever gives a cup of cold water to drink because of your name, as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. 
Jesus says, I see the little cup of water that's being given. And you know, we may look at some situation. Look at the widow of two mites as an example in the Bible. And she walked up at the treasury and she cast in something, a pittance of what, five cents or something like that? That's all she had. The rich men gave her their wealth at, the, at that time in a collection. And Jesus looked out and said, this woman has given more than you all. What the word of God is teaching me here is be careful because you might be speaking against God if we get too loose. Be careful, be disciplined because God may be working in an amazing way. Prove everything and hold fast to that which is good because the word of God is good. The word of God is pure. And as I look at this, we just see this, this little tendency that Jesus addresses that really affects all growing Christians. It is that tendency to slide into an area of judgment that is reserved for the Father himself in heaven. And that's why Jesus says, let's be careful. But notice, let's go on because there's another one we want to see here as we wrap up. It says, if your hand caused you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. Now, I want us to notice the severity of Jesus' teaching. He is teaching a very serious response to an offense. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast in the fire. Where the worm, he repeats this three times, does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And Jesus is giving a picture that the stakes of eternity are very high. And he's saying, what I am teaching is more than a lifestyle. What I am teaching is more of a way of life, life or a personal preference. What I am teaching is the way, the truth, and the life. The Word of God says, if you have the Son of God, you have life. If you do not have the Son of God, you do not have life. And Jesus here is saying, when you come to a place that you recognize what needs to be done, no matter how much it may hurt or cost, do it. Do it. If God convicts you, and here he uses the example of the hand and the arm, and yes, there has been examples of literal surgical removals that's been done in different places throughout the world. But there is a spiritual truth that Jesus is teaching here that the way of God is too precious and the truth of God is too real to ever lighten its touch in our life or in the life of another. And he is teaching something else that happens so easily in our lives we can forget who we are, why we are here, and where we are going, and how we got here. It can just slip us. 
And Christianity can just be a bunch of motion. And we lose the fervency and the power that goes with a committed disciple. We're going to see this as we look on just in a, in, in a minute because uh, we, we will see this as we look in the last couple of verses that Jesus speaks to us here. But remember, he, just, he speaks of these different parts of the body, but he's teaching something di differently. He's, he's really telling us, if you've got an addiction and that addiction is eating on you and it's keeping you from God, do whatever it takes to remove it. That's what he's saying. If you have got a stronghold that you quietly know and no one else knows but you and God, maybe your wife doesn't know it, your husband doesn't know it, your friends don't know it. Jesus is saying, life is so real and so serious and eternity is at the door. Do what it takes today to take care of it. When the Holy Spirit moves, he is saying, move. There is no better time to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit than the time he comes. Procrastination is like soul suicide on the installment plan. We say, I'll put it off. I know I got to do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it right. And God will come to us and say, no, it is so serious. Do it now. Make the call. Go to the friend. Hit our knees before God. God, I've got, I've got to get release. I can't keep going down this road. It will take me down the road to hell. And the challenge of it is it will take other people who are following also. Thousands and thousands of eyes are on this congregation that we don't even know every day of the week, wherever we're at. And as we come to the end of the message, we're going to see Jesus wrapping up in verses 49, he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Now he brings salt in the equation of his teaching, of his lesson. He says, everyone's going to be salted with fire. And there's different ways you could look at that, but I just give, the, give you this to take, to take home and consider that no one escapes trial, temptation, judgment, or hardship in life. Everyone gets it. The way of the Lord God called out Israel because they said, you say the way the Lord is an equal. No, God is a perfect God. That doesn't mean I will get the problem in my body, but God will allow his children to go through trial and suffering and hardship. And if you look at this with me, he says, everyone will be salt with fire. And then he says, salt is good. Now, salt was a major medium that was used in life sustenances in the days of Jesus. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have ways to preserve food. They had no way to take care of so much. So salt was a preserver. Salt was a flavorer. Salt also was used as a healer to burn a wound. Salt actually today in the chemistry that we have in our world, in most of the chemistries that we know, salt is one of the inert ingredients that goes into the compound of that chemistry. And Jesus was simply saying salt is good but if the salt becomes unsalty, King James says it like this, if salt loses its savor, if the sharpness of the salt goes out, if the cutting edge of spiritual conviction is gone in the human heart, if the word is not cutting me any longer, if it's not causing me to recognize I need Jesus Christ, 
God, I need you so much. It says, if the salt has lost, becomes unsalty, or lost its savour, with what will you make it salty again? One place Jesus teaches all that's left is you take that salt and you lay it out as a road base. It's good for nothing, but you put it out as a road base like rock and just make it, put it on the road. And the purpose of salt and how it was used before is no longer there. Jesus says it like this different times. You are the salt of the earth in the Sermon of the Mount. You are the light of the world. You're the city on a hill. You are salt. You are the flavor of surprise Arizona. You are the preserving power of surprise Arizona. You are the taste that your grandchildren experience and children as you allow him to work in your life. You are the salt. You are special, Jesus is saying. And he says it like this, have salt in yourselves. And you know, that's kind of an interesting term. I flip that around, look at different translations, different times in life. What's he saying? Really have salt in yourself. No, we can't say I'm just going to be salty. But what he's really saying is respond to the Lord to make you salt. Let the Holy Spirit have free course in your life. Give him yourself completely. Give him your all. Give him everything you are. And here he says, have salt in yourselves. And notice the result of what Jesus teaches here. It says, he doesn't say have salt in yourselves and you'll win a lot of people for Christ. He says, have salt in yourself and be at peace one with another. You see the end result of salt? The end result of the working of the Holy Spirit? As Jesus is teaching this, salt in yourself, peace with one another because we have found peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have found peace with God that passeth all understanding. You know, I have a friend I got to know several years ago, and I haven't seen him for several years, but God put him over by the Snake River. His name is Ralph. Years ago, he had a cherry orchard that failed. He just had one little cherry orchard. One day, Ralph just said, you know what, God, this orchard's yours. Anything that ever comes from this orchard, it'll be yours, and I will take it to India, and I will do whatever you want to do in India. And what happened in that orchard is it turned out bumper crop year after year after year after year. And it spread from there to many orchards along the Snake River. And the last I visited with him, he won't even talk about it unless you just pry it out. There were 11 orphanages that were working throughout India because this man had said, Lord, whatever, I'll give it to you. Not only that, he adopted a child for each or orphanage and he has 11 more children. That was salt, just salt. We don't have cherry orchards. God doesn't put us there. We were praying with our, our brothers at one of the tables and a woman come walking up and she said, I, I noticed you guys are praying. Are you Christian? And you don't say there's only 2.1% that are known to be Christian. She says, are you Christian? We said, yes, we are. And she must've been an 80 year old woman. She was a Christian. She says, I noticed that. And I just wanted to come over here and bless you. And 
She says, I was raised in the highest caste. The Brahmin caste is the highest. It's a priestly caste in India, just about five or six million people. And she says, I was raised in the Brahmin caste. And I came, but I met Jesus Christ when I was 15 years old, and I followed him. And she says, I lost my family in many ways. I didn't lose my casting, because you don't adjust castings. You don't move up. You don't move down. You can't change that. And she says, but I decided I would come back and bless these people, and I would do whatever I could to be a blessing. She says, you may have heard of this organization called Child Evangelism Fellowship. God, by his grace, allowed me to be a part of starting that. It's just now millions of people are touched, and I just over here teaching a few days. And we looked at her at the end, and we were so blessed. And then I just looked at her, and I said, Sister, how can we bless you before you leave? She says, will you pray for me? I said, yes. Just people don't ask that about to me. And there in the middle of that little Indian restaurant, we brothers stood over here and her and laid hands on her and prayed for this dear sister. And she says, that means so much to me. And she left. You see, the blessing of salt goes both ways. And you know, you're not in the Brahmin caste and you're not the guy raising the, the apples. And now there's 5,000 acres of apples and we've watched some amazing things. He has boys' homes along the Columbia River, all kinds of stuff. But you know who you are? You're a child of God and an heir and a joint heir of Jesus Christ, and you are the salt of the world and the light of the earth. You're God's children. You're the people he calls sons and daughters and heirs and joint heirs of Jesus Christ. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. You are a peculiar people called out to him. And now he says, go and be what you can be for Jesus where you're at. I don't know what that looks like. It might be just loving a neighbor across the street. I don't know. But God does. And God takes people just like us who deal with the same things the disciples dealt with, and then he empowers us and says, go and give your life and just serve. Think about this. We're not having Christmas surprise this year. But maybe God's calling all of you here to be involved in Christmas surprise in a special way in someone's life. Just think about that. Maybe the time that we're going to invest here, God might be calling you to go there and invest it. Maybe some resources you're going to set apart for this work at the church. God's saying, go and be that salt. Go and be that person to love. Someone who's forgotten. You're not in India we're not in China. We don't have apple orchards. We don't, I mean, we don't have cherry orchards and all that stuff, but we have the Holy Spirit. We have the power of God, and we have the greatest person who is named our Father. We've been hearing about him this, this morning in worship that's ever lived, ever in, in him we live and move and have our being. Whatever God is saying, possibly through this message, through the music, or maybe just through the season. Do what he says. Just do it. No matter what it costs, and no matter who's with you, do what God asks you to do. And God will turn around like those Koreans and just multiply that, and he will spread it. And what is done in that little cup of cold water that God gives you to do will multiply many fold 
Because when God does it, everything turns around and changes. Let's pray. Father, you're so amazing. The ways you work and the ways you love people like us and come back and even as you teach us through the word of God, God, we, we come to the point even in this message that we are overwhelmed because we want to do what you want us to do. But Lord, we, we struggle in areas of uncertainty and unbelief even. We confess that to you, Lord Jesus. And I pray, God, that you will just take us as your children, as your blood-bought saints. Use us this season, Lord. Use us this season. Maybe even outside the church in a way that you want your name to be magnified. Maybe you'll show us the little children. Maybe you'll show us a struggling family, Father. Whatever you want, I pray that we can be available and respond to your desire in your heart. Oh God, thank you for calling us all to serve you and giving us that wonderful high calling of God in Christ Jesus to be a servant. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us of the places that we can slip and we can struggle. Thank you also, Lord Jesus, that you remind us of people yet today, real living people that surround us, that are still living your faith and walking with you in this obedience and discipleship. Oh God, give us strength to join them. And maybe whatever you're doing today, Lord, whether it's right here at the altar, right here at the front of the sanctuary, it may be right here in the chair, it may be after we go home, Lord, May your work have its perfect work in our life is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.